Father, I just ask that, Lord, whatever I'm going to say here, Lord, would be your words. It would be your teaching and not mine, Lord, that, that your word would go forth and we would proclaim it boldly and that, Lord, you would help me to get everything correct and get all this stuff done in the time we need to do it in, Lord. So we thank you for this morning. I thank you for your message, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. So today we're going to be looking at Lazarus and the rich man, or as I put up here, rich man, poor man. Who, who remembers jump rope rhymes? You remember that? Rich man, poor man, beggar man, thief, doctor, lawyer, Indian chief. Nobody remembers that, right? I guess I'm the only old one here. <laughs> anyway, but the rich man, poor man, we're going to talk about Lazarus and the rich man from Luke 16. And, um, it, you know, Let's see. The, the, the theme of Luke 16 is money and righteousness. And it begins with the parable of the dishonest steward in verses 1 to 8. And this parable is the story of a dishonest, embezzling steward who was found out by his master and heard those words we're all going to hear eventually, right? Give an account of your management because you can't no longer be my manager. Well, we're not going to hear that. We'll hear the first part, give an account. And uh, when we're before God, because Paul says in Romans 14, 12, he says, so then each of us, will give an account of himself to God. But of course, we who are children of God will then hear these blessed words, well done, good and faithful servant. And Jesus ends the parable of the steward in uh, verse 13. There it is. Oh, sorry, I missed that one. I'm slowing down here, okay. He says, no servant can serve uh, two masters since either he will hate one and love the other or he'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. So, interestingly enough, this parable of the dishonest steward begins in verse 1, where Jesus is talking to his disciples. It says, now he said to his disciples. In other words, Jesus wasn't teaching to the multitude. This was a teaching just for his disciples. But of course, the Pharisees were there, and they were listening. And you know, being lovers of money, as it says in verse 14... They were scoffing at Jesus as he told this parable. So Jesus rebukes them, telling them in verse 15, God knows your hearts. For what is highly admired by people is revolting in God's sight. Then he proclaims that the kingdom of God is here and launches into the story of the rich man and Lazarus. And I want you to understand, I'm not calling this a parable. In his commentary, David Gusick says, Jesus did not present this story as a parable. And in no other parable did Jesus actually name an individual as the poor man is here named. We have every reason to believe that Jesus gave us an actual case history, one that he knew from his eternal perspective. So keep that in mind if we read this passage. And also note how there is a deliberate separation and comparison, contrast, between the rich man and Lazarus. So beginning in the 19th verse of Luke chapter 16, it says, there was a rich man who had dressed in purple and fine linen, feasting lavishly every day. But a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, was lying at his gate. He longed to be filled with what fell from the rich man's table, but instead the dogs would come and lick his sores. One day the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. Being in torment in Hades, he looked up and saw Abraham a long way off with Lazarus at his side. 
Father Abraham, he called out, have mercy on me. Send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this flame. Son, Abraham said, remember that during your life, you received your good things, just as Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here while you are in agony. Besides all this, a great chasm has been fixed between us and you so that those who want to pass over from here to you cannot, neither can those from there cross over to us. Father, he said, then I beg you to send him to my father's house because I have five brothers to warn them so they won't also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. They should listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. But he told him, if they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded if someone rises from the dead. So Jesus starts off with a simple statement, right? There was a rich man. And I can hear the disciples, right? How rich was he, right? So Jesus then adds some details to describe just how rich this man was. He would dress in purple and linen, feasting lavishly every day. Now in the ancient world, purple dye was very difficult to make. And it was because of that, it was very expensive. In the, in the Bible, the color purple is often used to denote kingly authority, wealth, and royalty. In Judges chapter 8, after Gideon crushed the Ishmaelites and Israel asked him to rule over them, Gideon requested a gold earring from each soldier's plunder. And in verse 26 of Judges chapter 8, we read, the weight of the gold earrings he requested was 43 pounds of gold in addition to the crescent ornaments and ear pendants the purple garments on the kings of Midian, and the chains on the necks of their camels. So from ancient times, kings wore purple as a sign of their authority and kingly dominion. In Proverbs 31, right, the chapter that describes the wife of noble character, certainly be considered well-to-do or wealthy. In verse 22, we have this, where it says, she makes her own bed coverings, her clothing is fine linen and purple. So it's interesting that the same type of clothing is mentioned here is what Jesus used to talk about the rich guy. In Esther 8.15, Mordecai went from the king's presence clothed in royal blue and white with a great gold crown and a purple robe of fine linen. Again, there's that purple and fine linen motif again. So then remember also that the Roman soldiers who mocked Jesus dressed him in a purple robe, right? Mark 15, 17, and 18. They dressed him in a purple robe, twisted together a crown of thorns, and put it on him. They began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews. Now, the, Jew, the Roman soldiers were mocking his kingly authority. And, you know, the real irony here is that Jesus really was a king. He was royalty. But you can see that mentioning the purple and fine linen, all the people then at that time would have heard this. They would have known that the man was very, very rich, right? But wait, there's more. Jesus goes on to say that this man was so rich that he feasted lavishly every day. This was in a time where people, if they were lucky, would feast maybe two, three times a year. Yet this man feasted lavishly every day. Bible commentary, uh, William Barclay says of this, 
The word used for feasting is the word that is used for gourmet feeding on exotic and costly dishes. And he did this every day. So we get the idea this guy was not just rich. He was super rich. He was certainly in the top 1%, as we would say. But then you note the contrast to the poor man in verse 20, where he says, a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, was lying at his gate. And again, I want to point out that this story is different from the other parables because Jesus actually names the poor man here. This also contrasts with the rich man who's nameless. And I, I believe the idea here is that the poor man is the notable one in this story. And we should remember his name, but the rich guy is like, nobody cares. He's forgettable. But here we have this poor man covered in sores, and he's lying at the rich man's gate. So certainly we can assume that the rich man was not unaware of the presence of Lazarus. I mean, how could he be, right, with Lazarus laying at his very gate? And while the rich man didn't do anything against Lazarus, he did neglect and ignore him. By the way, Lazarus is the Latinized form of Eleazar, which means God is my help appropriate name for this poor man who had no help from his fellow men. Jesus, again, doesn't leave us hanging wondering how poor Lazarus was, right? He adds in verse 21, he longed to be filled with what fell from the rich man's table, but instead the dogs would come and lick his sores. He was longing for just the crumbs from the rich man's table, but what he got was dogs licking him. We have two items here we want to look at here, the food and the dogs. Now, First of all, the food, what fell from the rich man's table. William Barclay, again, he notes that in the time of Jesus, food was eaten with the hands. And in very wealthy houses, the hands were cleaned by wiping them on hunks of bread, which were then thrown away. And this is what Lazarus was waiting for. So it wasn't like a doggy bag or even scrapings from the plate that Lazarus was longing for. No, it was basically garbage that they were throwing out. It wasn't like us, well, okay, me taking a tortilla or a piece of bread, man, you get down there and get all that sauce and everything, right? No, it wasn't like that. It was the bread used to wipe off the gunk that was on people's hands, and then they threw it out. And the mention of dogs is interesting because in today's world, you know, those of us who have dogs are used to them licking us as a sign of affection, right? And if we read into this verse our own prejudices, we're going to miss out, miss the point here. In the time of Jesus, especially among the Jewish culture, dogs were considered unclean beasts, scavengers of the street, unfit for human companionship. So even if the dogs were licking the wounds of Lazarus as a show of affection, it is likely that Lazarus and anyone who saw this would have been nauseated by it. Not to mention that since these dogs were apparently at the gate with Lazarus, he was probably in competition with them for whatever scraps of food were brought out. Verse 21, it doesn't say that Lazarus got nothing from the rich man's table. It says he longed to be filled with the scraps. So it's, it's likely he probably was able to secure some sustenance from the scraps, but the dogs were probably eating most of them. Whatever the situation, at least the dogs were paying attention to Lazarus, desired or undesired, which is more than the rich man did, right? Continuing verse 22, we have one day the poor man died and was carried away by angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. Now, as is the way of all mankind, both men eventually died. Lazarus did not have the honor of a burial in this life, yet heaven honored him. Angels carrying him to Abraham's side. The rich man had the honor of a funeral, 
but no angelic escort or pleasant destination. Now, Bible commentator C.M. Pate says, when he talks about Abraham's side or Abraham's bosom, says the idea can be explained in one of three ways. The idea that in death, the righteous are gathered to the patriarchs in faith. And you can see Genesis 15, where it talks about how Abraham will be gathered to his ancestors. The thought of a parent's love and care, as in John 1:18, where Jesus is at the father's side. And the idea of sitting at the place of honor at a banquet with John 13, 23, where John was reclining close to the side of Jesus. So we have Lazarus at Abraham's side. And where's the rich man? Ah, let us read the next verse, verse 23. Being in torment in Hades, he looked up and saw Abraham a long way off with Lazarus at his side. The rich man was being tormented in Hades. Now, we've got to talk about that you know, Lazarus was not saved by his poverty. No more than the rich man was condemned by his wealth. Lazarus must have had a true relationship of faith with the true God, whereas the rich man did not. Their life circumstances made that faith easier or more difficult, but it did not create the faith. But apparently the rich man was not far from Lazarus, yet he was a world apart. His place was full of torment and pain, while Lazarus enjoyed comfort and care from Abraham. Jesus described a place he called Hades, which seems to have been the common abode of the dead. The rich man and Lazarus were not in the same place, but they were not far from each other. It's probably better to say that they were in two areas of the same place. One, a place of torments, and the other, place of comfort. From this story, we find some hints regarding the world beyond this one as it existed in the past and as it exists now. From Jesus' description, one may say that at that time, before the finished work of Jesus on the cross, that the spirit or soul of the human dead went to a place called Hades. Some in Hades rested in comfort. Others suffered under torments. Hades is a Greek word, but it seems to carry much the same idea as the Hebrew word Sheol, which is the idea of the place of the dead. Sheol has no direct reference to either torment or happiness. The idea of Sheol is often just said the grave. And the understanding of the afterlife in the Old Testament is much less clear than it is in the New Testament. But Hades was technically not hell, or what we know as the lake of fire, the place called Gehenna, another Greek word borrowed from the Hebrew language. In Mark 9, Jesus spoke of hell, Gehenna, a Greek translation of the Hebrew for Valley of Hinnom, a place outside Jerusalem's walls, desecrated by the worship of Molech and human sacrifice. It was also a garbage dump where rubbish and refuse were burned, the smoldering fires, festering worms of the Valley of Hinnom made it a graphic and effective picture of the fate of the damned. This place is also called the Lake of Fire in Revelation 20, prepared for the devil and his angels. So when Jesus was on earth, Hades apparently was a waiting place until the final judgment. But since Jesus has finished work on the cross, there's no waiting for believers who die. They go directly to heaven, to the presence of the Lord. 2 Corinthians 5 talks about that. It's reasonable to think that when Jesus visited Hades as part of his redemptive work recorded in Acts 2, and when Jesus preached in Hades, as 1 Peter 3 says, that Jesus set the captives in Hades free, those like Lazarus. 
And also, he sealed the condemnation of the wicked and the unbelieving. But now we come to an interesting part of the story, most interesting part, I believe. The plea of the rich man, verses 24 to 26. He says, Father Abraham, he called out, have mercy on me. Send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, because I am in agony in this flame. Son, Abraham said, remember that during your life you received your good things, just as Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here while you are in agony. Besides this, a great chasm has been fixed between us and you so that those who want to pass over from here to you cannot, neither can those from there come over to us. Now the rich man cries out to his father, his ancestor Abraham, and note, Abraham does not disown him. Quite the contrary, Abraham calls him my son. The rich man was definitely a descendant of Abraham, but having Abraham as a father was not enough to escape the torment in the life to come. Now the rich man becomes the beggar, pleading with Abraham. This is reminiscent of what John the Baptist told the Pharisees in Matthew 3, 9, where he said, don't presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, for I tell you that God is able to raise up children for Abraham from these stones. It's not the blood relationship, it's the heart relationship. Paul recorded in Romans 10, 9, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And just to reinforce this idea again, the rich man was not in torment because he was rich, but because he lived a life apart from love and trust in God. And this was demonstrated by his life. Lazarus has proven to be the richer man in this story, right? But look what the rich man asked of Abraham. Have mercy on me, send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I'm in agony at this time, in this flame. What chutzpah, right? Even in Hades, the rich man was thinking only of himself. How superior he was to Lazarus, whom he considered to be his servant. This shows that death didn't change him. He still had the same sense of entitlement and superiority that he had in life. Not to mention that the rich man couldn't claim that he didn't help Lazarus during his lifetime because he didn't know who he was. Because he recognized Lazarus at once when he saw him in Abraham's bosom. It was not because of lack of knowledge that the rich man failed to help Lazarus. It was a lack of thought. The rich man had never given a thought to Lazarus and his plight. Death did not take away the rich man's desires, only the fulfillment of those desires. He was in true torment, able to feel the desire, unable to fulfill it, desperate for even a drop of relief. Abraham's reply, verse 25, son, Abraham said, remember that during your life you received your good things, just as Lazarus received bad things, but now he's comforted here while you are in agony. Throughout his earthly life, the rich man enjoyed all the best that life had to offer. Yet he did not share them or use them to prepare for the life to come. Truly, he had stored up riches on earth, but he never gave a thought about storing up riches in heaven, right? This story now kind of explains the parable that begins the chapter of the dishonest steward, because the steward used his present position to prepare for his next position, 
The rich man squandered his riches with no thought for tomorrow or the next life. In verse 26, Abraham elaborates, whoops, 27, okay, we're not going yet. Okay, besides all this, a great chasm has been fixed between us and you so that those who want to pass over from here to you cannot and neither from, can those from there cross over to us. The rich man could see Lazarus. He was carrying on a conversation with Abraham, but they weren't very close. There was a great chasm, a great gulf fixed between them, one that prevented movement from one place to the other. Now notice that this story contains no idea of soul sleep or annihilation. Both Lazarus and the rich man are aware of their surroundings and what is happening. Nor is there any hint of purgatory or some kind of progressive cleansing that would enable someone to move from Hades to Abraham's bosom. The great uncrossable divide, this great chasm was fixed by God. So response from Abraham, right? At this response from Abraham, the rich man, at last he thinks of someone other than himself in verses 27 through 31. And he says, Father, he said, then I beg you to send them to my father's house because I have five brothers to warn them so they won't also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. They should listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. But he told him, if they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded if someone rises from the dead. Now the phrase, Father, I, then I beg you, right, again emphasizes that the rich man is now the beggar while Lazarus is in comfort. But even now the rich man considers Lazarus his servant. He requests that Abraham send Lazarus on another assignment, interrupting Lazarus's comfort. He wants to send him to his father's house to warn his brothers. So obviously the rich man remembered his family. His memory was not wiped out. He wasn't given a new consciousness when he passed from this life to the next. But in asking for Lazarus to go to his brothers so they won't also come to this place of torment, at least now the rich man shows he's caring about others not going to the place of torment. He had lived his life utterly unconcerned about the next life, either for himself or for others. But now that it's too late, he's concerned for his family. And Abraham points out, there's no need to send Lazarus because the rich man's brothers have Moses and the prophets. They should listen to them. The Old Testament contained everything necessary for anyone to escape the torment of Hades. Listening to Moses and the prophets and obeying them was enough to avoid it. Abraham pointed out that the rich man's brothers had all the necessary information to escape the torment of Hades. Listening to Moses and the prophets and doing what they said would be enough. Spurgeon says on this point, if the Holy Scripture be not in the hands of God enough to bring you to the faith of Christ, then though an angel from heaven, then though the saints from glory then though God himself should descend on earth to preach to you, you would go on unwed and unblessed. The rich man protests, right? Abraham answers him with a final summation of the issue. He protests, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes from the dead, they will repent. But he told him, nope, they won't listen to Moses and the prophets. They're not going to listen to someone who rises from the dead. The rich man objected because he knew that his family did not take Moses and the prophets seriously. He desperately hoped that if someone came from the dead and told them what Moses and the prophets had already told them, it would be more convincing 
more convincing than the Word of God. But we know it would not be more convincing because if someone refuses to believe the Word of God, they will not believe it even if someone rises from the dead. The rich man knew what his brothers needed to do and what he had failed to do, and that is to repent. He hoped that a spectacular appearance of someone from the dead would persuade them to repent. But Abraham, and we, we also know this, that it would not. The unbeliever thinks, and you and I, when we were unbelievers, thought this same way. The Bible already speaks too much about judgment and hell. They don't want to hear any more of it, even if it's a messenger from the afterlife. In fact, there's recorded in the Bible one who did return from death, and many believed, yet many did not. Even when Jesus, you know, two people, but even when Jesus rose from the dead, many refused to believe it. But in John 11, we have the record of Jesus raising another Lazarus, the other Lazarus. Yet when the religious leaders heard about it, they tried to kill Lazarus. Recorded in John 12, 10 and 11. But the chief priest had decided to kill Lazarus also because he was the reason many of the Jews were departing them and believing in Jesus. This part of the story shows the futility of trusting in signs and wonders to bring people to faith in Jesus. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Faith does not come by signs and wonders. Signs and wonders may get people to listen to his word, but even that is an uncertainty. Quoting Spurgeon again, he says here, when God's whole creation, having been ransacked by the hands of science, has only been testified to the truth of Revelation when the whole history of buried cities and departed nations has been preached out the truth that the Bible was true when every strip of land in the far off east has been an exposition and a confirmation of the prophecies of Scripture. If men are yet unconvinced, do you suppose that one dead man rising from the tomb would convince them? I do believe that Lazarus from Abraham's bosom would not be so good a preacher as a man who has not died, but whose lips have been touched with a live coal from the altar. Again, the rich man wasn't lost because he was rich. He was lost because he didn't listen to the law and the prophets. Many rich people will also be lost for the same reason, not because they're rich, but because they did not heed the gospel. So we understand the story a little bit more here. I want to look at six lessons we can take from this story. The first one is, surprise, surprise, we will all die someday, right? I think we all know this fact, but it's human nature to overlook this or even outright deny our own mortality, especially when we're young. Even though life is replete with examples of people who die suddenly and at a young age, it's not something we tend to dwell on and we probably shouldn't. But we should consider this fact. Unless unless Jesus returns, everyone here in this room will eventually die. Rich or poor, young or old, famous, infamous, or unknown, we all face the same fate. Hebrews 9.27, just as it is appointed for people to die once and after this, judgment. It wasn't meant to be this way. As Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, death came through the human race, through the man Adam, when the first people sinned in the Garden of Eden. The second item is, just because you're rich doesn't mean you're blessed by God. 
Now, the Jews of Jesus' day equated being rich with being blessed by God. And conversely, being poor was considered a curse from God. You can see this when Jesus said in Matthew 19, 23 and 24, Truly, I tell you, it will be hard for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And what did his disciples think about this? The next verse. When the disciples heard this, they were utterly astonished and asked, well, then who can be saved? We may have a different view today. There are still many who call themselves Christians, yet they strive for material gain because they believe that God wants them to be rich. Well, they probably don't say that, but they'll say stuff like, God wants me to be prosperous or God wants me to be blessed. They think if they're rich and prosperous, that is the mark of God's blessing. This comes from the so-called prosperity gospel preachers who would do well to remember what Paul said to Timothy in 1 Timothy 6, 6 through 10. But godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out. If we have food and clothing, we will be content with these. But those who want to be rich fall into temptation, a trap, and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, and by craving it, some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. So while God may choose to bless someone with material wealth, wealthiness itself is not a sign of God's blessing. Conversely, being poor is not a curse from God. Just being rich, as being rich is no guarantee that you have the blessing of God in your life. Being poor is not a sign that God is displeased with you. Jesus was poor. He was born to human parents who were young, certainly not wealthy at that point. Joseph was a working man. He was a carpenter. Later in his adult life, Jesus himself said he had no place to call home. In Matthew 8, 20, he told the scribe who said he had followed Jesus anywhere, he told him, the foxes have dens and birds of the sky have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. And certainly most of the disciples were poor working class men. Of the 12, we know for sure that four of them, Andrew, Peter, James, and John, were fishermen. And three more of them, Thomas, Nathaniel, and Philip, were also found fishing when Jesus appeared to them after his resurrection. So they could have been fishermen. I don't know if People have gone fishing, but I don't know if you've ever watched, what's that called? Um, that catch thing, I don't remember. Some, 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 sto- you know, some of those um, reality shows about the guys on the boat and they're catching tuna and all that stuff. It's hard work. It's not easy. So it's hard work. These guys are working men, right? Simon called the zealot was probably a politician or a revolutionary. And if he had any money, he certainly didn't have any money after he gave that up to follow Jesus. The Bible provides no information on the professions of Philip, Bartholomew, Thomas, Thaddeus, or James, the son of Alphaeus, which leaves Matthew, called Levi, right, who was a tax collector. Now, he may have been wealthy because tax collectors were known to profit off the taxes they collected. But we read in, in Luke 5, 27 and 28, when Jesus called him to be a disciple, He says, after this, Jesus went out, saw the tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax office, said, follow me. So leaving everything behind, he got up and began to follow him. Matthew left everything to follow Jesus. He became poor 
in order to follow Jesus. And this leaves us with Judas, the betrayer. He may have also been wealthy because John identifies Judas as a thief and an embezzler, and, but we all know what happened to him. So out of the 12, there are perhaps two who were wealthy. All the rest were just working, you know, middle-class working stiffs. Paul, right, was a tent maker. Again, a working-class man. The point of all this is that the people who wrote most of the New Testament, all the New Testament, who planted churches throughout Asia and the Mediterranean area, the people who were blessed mightily by God and used mightily by him in working miracles and healings, they were all poor, or at best what we would call middle class. Even the ones who may have had money when they first began following Jesus certainly had none of that left after they followed him for three years. So we can see that being poor is no indication of God's curse, and it may be a sign that God can actually use you more. Right? Next point is, we choose how we respond to the poor and neglected. In this story, the rich man had to be aware of Lazarus and his plight. Lazarus was lying at the rich man's gate. When they both died, the rich man recognized Lazarus in Abraham's bosom. So obviously he knew about Lazarus. He could have made his life easier, but the rich man chose to ignore Lazarus and his situation. I have to admit, when I see somebody on the street corner here in El Paso holding a sign that says anything helps or something similar to that, and I know they're begging or panhandling, I tend to look the other way, right? It's difficult, isn't it, to know, are they really needy or are they just trying to make a buck? It's a tough decision, and I don't have any answers for you except to do whatever you think God is calling you to do in those situations. I can tell you that times God has brought someone across my path, right, placed them at my gate, so to speak, I've usually responded with charity, not always, but most times. So one example, I went to Circle K to get gas a while back. There's a middle-aged woman there with her truck, and she looks kind of distraught. And sure enough, she comes up to me and wants to know if I got any money. She needs gas for her truck. Apparently, she lives way out in the east side of the county. And you know, she didn't bring her debit card with her. She needed gas to get back home. And I told her, no, I, don't, I don't carry cash, which is true. I don't have any. But all the time I'm pumping gas, God is like talking to me. You know, right? you know what I mean, right? And so when I got done, she was still there. And I walked over to her and I said, look, I said, I asked her point blank. I said, you know, do you really need gas? Or are you just looking to get some money? And she goes, no, I, I need gas. I need to get home and this and that. So I put 20 bucks in her truck on my debit card, you know. And, you know, I, I'm not saying this for, you know, you think I'm anything, right? I'm just telling you that this is an example of what you need to do. When God puts someone at your gate, you need to pray, seek the Lord, and then do what God lays on your heart. But remember, it's your choice to obey or not. The next item here is what we do in this life affects the life to come. The choices we make in this life have an everlasting consequence, right? Remember what Abraham told the rich man? He said, during your life, you received your good things, just as Lazarus received bad things, but now he's comforted while you're in agony. The rich man was a descendant of Abraham, so he knew what he needed to do. Micah 6.8 says, mankind, he has told you what is good and what is the Lord requires of you to act justly to love faithfulness and to walk humbly with your God. The rich man failed all three of these. Certainly, he did not act justly towards Lazarus. He was unfaithful to God, and he did not walk in humbleness, but exalted himself in fine living, 
and material goods. No, it wasn't his riches that condemned him. Again, I want to point that out. It was what he did with those riches. He used them to bless only himself with nary a thought to the less fortunate or even of God. And the last item is, we cannot escape judgment. Now, the world may tell you that this life is all there is, and we should, as the old commercial goes, nobody remembers this stuff except me, right? There was a commercial that said, grab all the gusto you can, right? You only go around once in this life. It's an old beer commercial, anyway. It tells you what kind of, what kind of TV I watched, huh? <laughs> but there's a judgment after this life is over. As we saw earlier in Hebrews 9, 27, it's just the point of people to die once and after this judgment. You can count on this, right? We should be called to account for what we did and what we said. Matthew, Jesus said this in Matthew 12, 36. I tell you that on the day of judgment, people will have to account for every careless word they speak. After we die, there are no second chances. When that final judgment is pronounced, there is no appeal to a higher court because the great I am has spoken. You will be judged according to your actions in this life. Paul, in Romans 2, he writes about people condemning others while they themselves are doing the same things. And then he says this in verses 5 and 6, because of your hardened and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment is revealed. He will repay each one according to his works. In verse 6, Paul quotes Psalm 62.12 and Proverbs 24.12. So this idea of God repaying each according to his works is a well-established principle, even in the Old Testament. Again, in 2 Corinthians 5.10, Paul warns, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each may be repaid for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Revelation 20, in the section called the Great White Throne Judgment, John writes in verse 12, I also saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by what was written in the books. In Galatians 6, 7, we're told, don't be deceived. God is not mocked. For a person sows, whatever person sows, he will also reap that. You get the idea what we do in this life matters, that really matters, that has eternal consequences? But God, aren't those two of the most encouraging words <laughs> to hear, right? In Romans 5, 6, and 8, Paul writes, For well, we were still helpless at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For rarely will someone die for a just person, though a good person, perhaps someone might even dare to die. But God proves his own love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. In the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve sinned. And through that sin, death spread to all mankind. Adam and Eve were tempted to eat the forbidden fruit. That temptation led to desire. Desire conceived sin, and sin gave birth to death. But God, by the precious blood of his son, Jesus Christ, made atonement for sin, for all of our sins. Jesus died on the cross as a sin offering for all of us. And then in triumph over death, Jesus rose again. Praise God, huh? So we're going to take partake of communion here. And I want to explain how we do things here. I don't see there's everybody's here, but in case somebody's new here, I think nobody's new here. 
But anyway, if you're a child of God, you're free to take the elements with us. If you're not, then I ask that you do not partake. Yeah, guys, can you hand out the stuff, yeah. Do not partake with us because if you partake of these elements unworthily, then you're guilty of sin against the blood and body of our Savior, Jesus Christ. In the same manner, we should all examine ourselves before we partake, right? In John 6, Jesus says, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. The bread that I give you, the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. This caused the Jews to argue amongst themselves because they could not understand how Jesus would give them his flesh to eat. So then Jesus kicks it up a notch. And he says, truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood. You do not have life in yourselves. And then he continues, the one who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day because my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. The one who eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in him. Just as the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. It is not like the manna your ancestors ate and they died. The one who eats this bread will live forever. When Jesus instituted communion at what we call the Last Supper, he re it was recorded this way in the Gospel of Luke. He took the bread, he gave thanks, he broke it, he gave it to them and said, this is my body which is given to you, for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's pray. Lord, as we take this bread, we commemorate your scourging, your broken body that was nailed to a cross in order that our sins, all of them, and indeed the sins of all of us here, could be atoned for and satisfy God's righteous judgment. Thank you for being willing to suffer the horror of the cross for our sakes. Amen. Take this bread, remembering that it represents the body of Jesus broken for us. Continuing in the Gospel of Luke. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper and said, this is the cup. This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Let's pray again. Lord, we take this cup, which represents your blood that had to be shed for us, because without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. As you took the cup of God's wrath, you gave us the cup of forgiveness. We take it remembering that your precious blood was shed so that we could be forgiven. You became sin 
so that we could share in your righteousness. Thank you for your obedience, even the obedience to the point of death on the cross. Amen. Drink this cup remembering that Jesus shed his blood for our forgiveness so that the new covenant could be put into action. Now, if you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, talk to, talk to one of us here or come to the altar. We'll be happy to explain how you can take advantage of, the, advantage of this limited time offer. Salvation from your sins through Jesus. But it is limited. This offer expires when you do. When you die, it will be too late. If you know Jesus, but maybe you find yourself looking a little too much like the rich man in our story today, the altar is open for you too. Our God is a God of second chances and third and fourth and fifth. And well, you get the idea. It's never too late to repent and start doing good.